Music to My Ears, the podcast that discusses generational wealth and wealth in general. Welcome your host, Stephen Lewis. Welcome to Music to My Ears. I'm your host, Stephen Lewis, and today my team and I are excited to launch this initial episode. The goal of Music to My Ears going forward will be to interview some of the top thought leaders about success with wealth as well as sharing some of my insights and lessons and stories that I learned by working with a global clientele of ultra-high net worth clients for over 16 years. In digging through the best topics for you, our listeners, my team and I came up with over 40 ideas that should help all of us with being more successful with the wealth that we have or will be getting. So today my guest is a clear thought leader and one of the most informed financial individuals I know, Matt Palazzolo, the host of Bernstein Insights. Matt, let me start by saying how much I have enjoyed your podcast and how concisely you cover the subjects on the minds of investors. I appreciate that compliment, uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to listening to your music to my ears. It's, a, it's obviously very important to all of your clients and investors in general, pr- particularly high net worth ones. Um, so let me just ask you a question. Uh, what, I guess what started you out thinking about this podcast and how important it would be to your clients? Well, look, I, I think the podcast more than anything was that not everybody's going to have time to read through all the research. And I think the information's so important for them to, to get through that if I could give it in a podcast form, it'll bring a lot of benefit. But the research itself even started, it was interesting. I was in a meeting with a client. And I'd asked the question about what's the most important things on their mind right now. And I wasn't really prepared for the response because he he looked at me and he said, I need to have a plan that involves me not being here. And I don't mean in a year or two. I mean in a couple months. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. Well, and I don't think you're ever really ready. No, of course not. For for when those come like that. So um, I said, okay, well, what's concerning you the most right now about the current situation and he said, look, I don't know what's the right amount to leave to my heirs so that their life will be better and not worse off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, it reminds me, one of my clients actually said it this way. He said, you know, how do I leave my kids a leg up and not two legs up on a couch? Okay, yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah. Well, so it was at that moment that I said, look, I have to figure out this answer. And I went on this exhaustive research uh, project. I spent about a year and a half, two years, reading dozens of books and articles and interviews both inside the firm and outside, and it resulted in the publication of Music to My Heirs and really a complete realignment of my business focus in general, just really focusing on this idea of how do we answer those questions for our families. You know, it's interesting for an industry that tends to have uh, rules of thumb or, you know, uh, little you know, quips to, to make things easier to understand. It, it's fascinating that you had to do so much research to figure out such a core answer to a question. Yeah. I kept thinking there would be a Dunbar number or something like yeah, that that we could something just pull, easy. right? I figured maybe I'll, I'll create something like yeah. that. It, it actually was somewhat discouraging. When I went and did the research, here's what I found. It said, if Generation 1 transfers a dollar to generation two mm-hmm. generation two will end up with about 30 cents at the end of their time amazing yeah amazing. and then by the time generation three has it it's about a dime yeah right. so 90 percent wealth destruction over three generations and I, I just assume that's where the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves and three generations comes from but it was really just you know discouraging i guess in your research why is it why does why do we go from 
money to so much less money in such a short period of time? Well, look, I think preserving wealth is hard. I'll show you why it's hard. Let me give you an example. Let's do an experiment. I want you to go deep into that medial temporal lobe in your brain, and I want you to think of the name of your great-grandfather. I have no idea. I have no idea. I literally have no idea. You don't know what he did. You don't know his name. You don't really know. I, no. I mean, so, that, I mean it's, that's me. I mean, that, that's real, you know, my personal relationship, but yeah. I have no idea. Yeah, and it's interesting. Most people, when I ask, don't know. Yeah. And if you think about it, if it's that hard just to pass information down generations, wouldn't you be surprised if I said your great-grandkids probably won't even know your name? Yes, it just doesn't sad. seem... No, it's, yeah, it doesn't I feel seem bad like, about that. Right. So if it's that difficult just to pass information, why do we think transferring wealth would be really any easier? So, yeah, I mean, I get it. It's a challenge. Certainly, it's, it's, it's a challenge for all individuals, but those that have significant wealth. Maybe in this podcast, um, at, least, at least I'd be interested to know, you know, how do you think through generational wealth with your own team? Um, maybe give us three different things that you found to be the biggest causes of this wealth destruction mm-hmm. over years. And then, most importantly, what can be done to avoid that destruction? Okay. Yeah, well, look, here's how we start with approaching the the planning of the thought. We start with an explanation, really, that money can go one of four places. You can use it in your lifetime. You can give it to somebody you care about. You can give it to charity. And if it doesn't end up in one of those three places, typically the government's going to take it. Usually we're trying to minimize that fourth one. G- generally so, you're trying to minimize that. Yeah. That's usually not where I see... The number one goal is let's try to get as much. And I've got colleagues here in New York. They're trying to maximize that first one, which is they're going to spend all their money. They've got the right right of first refusal to uh, spend it all on wine and and dinners and so forth. And I've heard let's have that check bounce on them. Yeah, you know that that right. Well, so we go through this. We go through a proprietary modeling process where we look at that and give our clients the opportunity to pre-experience the future. Now, Matt, what we're looking for when we go through there is we're looking for something that we call core, which is. The amount of money that they're going to need in their lifetime, I kind of think of it as like all you're going to need to the day you leave, right? What if we could actually answer that, right? Well, if we can, and we believe we can get pretty accurate with that, then we have an idea of what might be surplus or money that we're stewards of Mm -hmm. for generations to come or charity, whatever it might be. So once we go through and look at that, then with that family, we can agree on how much should go where, the best structure to get it there, when to get it there, and then finally and probably most importantly, we then make sure that all the assets are have the appropriate amount of risk, liquidity, taxation, and return for the time horizon that they have. Mm-hmm. By the way, look, we're really good at this. And we're good at it even when all the rules and the facts seem to keep changing. So maybe go a little bit further on that. What what do you mean by everything keeps on changing? Okay. Well, look, let's take, for example, if you look back about 100 years, Mm -hmm. 1918, life expectancy at birth was about 50 or so. Yeah. Now it's over 80, right? So the measurement of how long a generation is keeps stretching, and that's a challenge, right? We don't even have the same amount of time when we talk about a generation. I can, de- I can definitely see that. So how did you answer that question of how much should one individual leave to their heirs? Well, look, the research, I, I was not able to find a simple answer, but I found a solution. And the solution started to surface when I viewed the question not as how much, but how much of what. Mm-hmm. See, 
there's three things we can leave to our heirs. We can leave our wealth and possessions. We can leave our knowledge of how we built wealth and how we manage that wealth. And we can leave our values. Okay, so you're broadening it out beyond just dollars and cents. That's an important distinction. Yeah, and I think that's probably one of the challenges is people look at it only as dollars and cents, and they're not looking at all the assets we have to leave. So the solution, which I wrote, by the way, in really big, bold letters at the top of page one of the research, Mm -hmm. it says that if families transfer wealth without providing knowledge and values, it is more likely to be destructive than productive. That probably necessitates saying it again because it was, it was in big, bold letters. I know it's important. Right. So, so maybe one more time. Right. So if families transfer wealth without providing knowledge and values, it's more likely to be destructive than productive. Um, I usually joke with clients and say, don't keep it a secret. Tell everyone you know. Mm-hmm. You know This idea that wealth is a gift, look, it's a gift, but it has to be wrapped in knowledge and tied up with values or it turns out to be less of a present and more of a prison for your heirs. So, so that framework, I guess, seems simple enough, but doesn't happen enough over time. What's causing hard-earned wealth to erode along this pathway? So look, I, I grouped this into a little bit of a mnemonic of uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic. I always, by the way, say that I do this for the people in the room, but I really do it for me, right? <laughs> I, I, but look, I'll, I'll take you through the three big destructive pitfalls. And we'll start with the first one I call reading. So reading is this idea of not transferring the intellectual capital of family, not sharing the knowledge. Um, I always think about a great story I heard one time of an interview done with a professional golfer. Mm -hmm. And the uh, interviewer said, if you could transfer your knowledge and skill for the game or the money you made playing which one would you transfer to your heirs? What did he say? The first one for sure. He said, because the knowledge and skill, they'll never starve. If I leave them the money, it could be gone in no time. And, and all that frustration about playing golf, that all goes away. Right, right? that that's, all goes that's away. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and so I, I turn this around sometimes. I'll ask my clients. I'll say, if you could go back to being 21 years of age, knowing everything you know now, not the lottery numbers, um, although <laughs> we do have lottery winners as clients, right? but, not the, but you just know everything you know now, could you become as wealthy as you are now again? Right. What do they say? They, they always say yes. Yeah. And the reason they say yes is because they know what they would do and they know what they wouldn't do. And so it's all that knowledge. So I guess maybe why doesn't this happen? Why don't wealthy parents that have become successful and, and gained wealth, why don't they teach their children all of these lessons that they've learned through their own experiences and successes? Yeah, that's the question, right? That's the big question I came up first. And you know what they're doing instead? What they're doing instead, instead of transferring the knowledge, they're looking to get their kids into what are the supposed best universities so that those universities can teach them how to be successful in life. Right. And by the way, a lot of times those universities are turning around and trying to get clients like ours (laughs) to come speak to the kid. But I'll ask, are you sharing that information? Are you sharing your successes and your failures? And in most cases, they're not. And so that is one of the big pitfalls is just not transferring that knowledge. Right. And so that's, that's reading. That's point number mm-hmm. one. Let's move on to the next one, which is writing. How do you think about yeah. that? And by the way, I, I changed the spelling of writing to like it's my right. Yeah. Right. I'm right. entitled. Right. It, it's overcoming that sense. Of we'll see all that in your research. You'll see it in yeah, there. It's, yeah. in, it's in there. Think of this as um, avoiding that entitlement. 
Okay. Now, when I went and did a lot of research on avoiding entitlement, I found all this information about how nature really is designed us to struggle. Okay. So let me give you an example. Uh, you may have heard this this little parable before, but I love it. It's it's a little parable about uh, a young boy who walks up onto a cocoon that has a butterfly in it, and he's watching, and the, the butterfly's fighting to come out of the cocoon, and he feels so bad for the butterfly that he goes in the house, gets a pair of scissors. Opens the cocoon. Uh-oh. The butterfly falls out. Oh, wow. And he watches it. It never flies. Oh. What he didn't realize is that butterflies have to fight cocoons to push, push the fluid mm-hmm. through their wings so they're strong enough to fly ah, in the future. Fascinating. So everything he wanted to do to help out the butterfly, he actually doomed it in trying to help it. I don't know who I feel worse for, the kid or, <laughs> or that butterfly. Yeah, I feel the same way. Um, look, this doesn't just happen to kids and butterflies. Do you remember in the 1980s? When they built that famous biodome in the desert? Uh, remind me. Okay, well, look. A bunch of pretty brilliant scientists got together, and, and they created this controlled environment of a biodome in the desert. And they started to realize that trees were getting tall and then falling over. And they didn't know why. Well, they later discovered that they had not entered wind into the biodome. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that because the trees didn't have to struggle against the wind, the roots didn't go deep and get strong. And they were falling over. Okay, so similar to the butterfly situation, challenge is, is pretty critical to improving your own situation. I guess, what did your research show as it pertains to wealthy families and, and challenges? Yeah. And I don't know if you feel this way. I know I do about my kids. But you know, I want and they want the lives of their heirs to be better. Yes. Right? Absolutely. Everyone's wanting that. Unquestionably. And the mistake they're making oftentimes is they're removing the grit and the struggle of life thinking that is what's going to make them a more successful and a better life. Yeah, it's a, de- it's a delicate situation, right? If, if we challenged ourselves, maybe we want to give to them more, but there, there are huge benefits to challenges in and of themselves. Yeah, and so I started saying, well, let's look up and see if there are any real studies about what does make a child successful, what does make a next gener- generation successful, uh, and you know, are there some predictors of success in the future? Mm-hmm. So what'd you find? Well, look, the studies really began in about the 1960s uh, when two Stanford professors, uh, Walter Mitchell and Ed Evanson, they conducted the now famous uh, Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. Okay, I don't know if you ever remember reading about it or hearing about it, but here's the basics of how it worked. They would put a child in the room uh, with a plate and a marshmallow, and they would tell them that if they waited to eat the treat until they returned, they'd give them a second marshmallow, right? right? So I know you, how my kids would do. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, I have three kids, and they'd all do differently. You know? so, <laughs> so the children were left alone for about 15 minutes, and then the researchers returned and found that some had an empty plate, yeah. and some hadn't touched the marshmallow. Right. And, well, I, I said some hadn't touched the marshmallow. Well, some sat on the marshmallow, but they hadn't yeah. eaten the marshmallow, yeah. so officially they, they didn't. But the real impact of that study came over the next 40 years because they followed each child in the study and watched their lives developed mm-hmm. and it was eye-opening the children who were able to delay the gratification mm-hmm. okay not eat the marshmallow they ended up with better life outcomes by measured by sat scores educational achievement body mass index and stress coping skills so like this was the first real evidence of a predictive and measurable trait i guess i'm, I'm starting to little worry a little bit i'm thinking yeah. about my kids again right and if you put a marshmallow in front of them they might not wait 
and so maybe they're doomed. Probably not, right? There's probably some right. other influences. Yeah. But I mean, how do you how do you teach delayed gratification? More, you know, less about marshmallows than than about success and wealth and everything that comes along with that. So University of Rochester in 2012 went out to say, look, if we've identified that delayed gratification is one of these real predictors of future success, can you teach it? Can you train it? And so they they said, how do we look to see if that's possible? So they decided to preempt the marshmallow test. They did a marshmallow test also, but they preempted it with two contrasting environments. Mm -hmm. So they took one group and they sat them down and they said, here's some crayons. They're older crayons. You can draw for a little bit, but I'll be back shortly with a brand new big large box of crayons. After about two and a half minutes, the researchers returned and apologized to some of them saying, oh, th- there's actually no new crayons. Oh, no. <laughs> Traumatizing. Traumatizing. I mean, you want all the colors, yeah. right? The second group, the setup was exactly the same, but the researchers returned with the new crayons. Right. Here's what happened. The children in the second group who got the new crayons they waited almost four times longer to eat their marshmallows than the first group, or, or they didn't eat them at all. Oh yeah. So the lesson was that they were that these small little delays that can happen before, they're part of an overall experience, and uh, that allows them to start building on delayed gratification, and that's so critical to our next generation's future ability to be good stewards of family wealth. So we can start to provide these types of things for them, and look. Remain aware, I know the world we live in today is not about creating delayed gratification. That's not our world. It's, it's just probably the opposite. Yeah, I was going to say, um, in today with, I just think about Amazon, how you can get things same day and everything else. I mean, I, with my kids, if we have a question, you used to, in, your, in my day, we would go to the encyclopedia and look. At, now we just pull out our phones oh, yeah. and Google search it. Yeah. Right, so it's it's harder today. I think all of our listeners need to recognize that it's different today than it ever was, but it's really important. Let's move on to your yeah. third factor, which is arithmetic. Tell us about okay. that. So, look, arithmetic is not really understanding the compounding effect, mm-hmm. and this is interesting because it's it's slightly different than what you might think from compounding. Right? I know you probably remember the name Cornelius Vanderbilt. Yes, of right? right? He was one of the richest men that that ever lived. Now. You would think that his heirs would be some of the wealthiest people today based on compound interest sure. alone, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, though, compounding worked against him. His family multiplied in size, and his children, and probably even more his grandchildren, lived pretty lavish lifestyles. Mm-hmm. So in the 1970s, there's a family reunion of 120 members of his family. Right. Not a millionaire in there. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It was complete destruction of the wealth. But what we learned from this example is that families grow, they tend to grow, and resources and demands on wealth also tends to grow. Mm-hmm. And then families begin to split the money into smaller and smaller buckets. They lose the efficiencies of the larger buckets and the professional services. So they take on more risk and get less return at a higher price. Right. I totally get it. It makes, it makes sense that um, the reading, the writing, and the arithmetic that you laid out are all about these challenges of mm-hmm. generational wealth and building it and making it last for generations. More important than understanding that, or in addition to that, is is how to overcome these pitfalls. So maybe give us some of that that research that you yeah. found. We'll start with the first one. When we think about reading, right? I talked about this this knowledge and passing it on, this intellectual capital. Look, the answer is communication, mm-hmm. but it's not just basic communication. You have to have structure and consistency. Family meetings with professional teams 
are important. Foster communication from generation one, which isn't always easy, and foster curiosity from generation two. And by the way, when I say generation one and generation two, that could be two and three or three and four, right, whatever, wherever you are, whatever, wherever you are in the process. But you have to have a repeatable process and you have to commit to it. My team and I have been developing that structure for over the last seven years, but we continue to improve it daily. But we have that structure to be able to go in there. And it's important to understand that I talk to clients sometimes. They say, well, we don't really communicate about this. You're communicating whether you think you are or not. Right. Through a lack of communication. Through a lack of communication yeah. and by what you do every day. Yeah. I mean, your heirs watch the decisions you make and how you operate with your wealth every day. Yeah. Right? So just think about the money lessons that your parents taught you or maybe what they could have taught you if they would have spent some more time going through some of their failures or successes, what they might be. Yeah, we've done some work on this, and I certainly have been influenced by the way that they thought about, talked about, dealt with money, and some of those things I want to keep and some of those things I don't want to do with my own family. So so I think stepping back and thinking about it is really, really important. So I guess when, when you and your team talk about this, is, I mean, is is this more of a financial 101 type class, or is it different? Well, it's much more than that. We're, we're often asked to do a one-day or a one-hour financial training for the next generation. And look, I think it's valuable. I think it's good. But it's a little bit like taking a quick Spanish lesson. Mm-hmm. Do you ever take foreign languages? Do you- I did. I took French for a year, and I took Latin. Right. And do you speak either one of them very well? Well, I certainly don't speak Latin. And, <laughs> yeah. I, and I don't speak French, right. so no. Right. no. I, but, I mean, I can barely speak English, but right. yeah. Well, and typically people will tell you they did. They don't remember it well because they weren't immersed in it, right? Yeah. They, yeah. they, they yeah, learned certainly. it, but they weren't immersed. So it, it, those little trainings are good, but they're often forgotten if you don't get immersion. Well, immersion is what goes on in the house every day around finances. So yes, we can do that, but we also need the generation above to – operate in a certain way that's consistent with that. So that's how we overcome the pitfalls of, of reading. Let's move on to the second one, which is writing. How do we overcome that within our family? All right. Step, the biggest thing is families need to recognize that delayed gratification is not only a good thing for their heirs, yeah. but it's critical to the future success. Right. Okay. They just need to reinforce it with a reward for taking small delays. I'll give you an example. We talk to our clients sometimes about whether they do annual gifting to their children, mm-hmm. especially their adult children that are working. Yeah. I'll ask the question, do you know if your uh, children are contributing to their 401k plans? Well, many times they don't know. Mm-hmm. But I'll say if they, if they are not and you are gifting, they are likely living above their means. Right. And if them fully funding their 401k means – that it affects their budget some, that's a great use of gifting money. Because what you're doing is you're rewarding them for making a delayed gratification decision that's going to benefit them in the future. So I assume if if the parents are gifting and the next generation is not fully utilizing their 401k, they're likely to be living beyond their means. Yeah, no question. Right. By the way, this idea of allowing struggle isn't some new concept or something that was just figured out. If you look back at Andrew Carnegie's book, which he wrote in the 1800s called The Advantages of Poverty, it's what he talked about. It's like his wealth building was because of the poverty, because of the struggle that he went through. And look, it's something that Harvard discovered when they did one of the longest studies in the school's history. This is a study that looked for something that would be a predictor of future success in business. I mean, not... not Life success, business success. Right. Where Stanford was looking at life, this is business. Can you guess what one of the top two predictors were? Uh, I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah, let me know. 
one of the top was, did you have unconditional love as a child? And I think mm-hmm. we can all yeah. try to make that happen. Yeah. But the second one that was so surprising to most people is, did you do chores? This, again, this is business success. Business success. Did you do chores? And more specifically, were they chores that benefited the whole family? Right. Right. The idea was that if you can become part of a system where your input affects the success and the failure of the system at an early age, you'll have so much more time. I think about it like, you know, Gladwell's 10,000 hours, which is actually Erickson's 10,000 hours, but that's fine. Mm -hmm. But you're part of a group and you understand that impact and that if you were able to do that at a young age – that's just more time in being able to, to to be successful. So they can learn that you can do well by doing good, the whole For, chore benefit. Right. And and you said do well by doing good because we love to use philanthropy as one of the big training tools in this, right? Mm-hmm. We can show them what the power of a dollar can do, understanding due diligence, portfolio design, spending pot. We could do all that with philanthropy as a training tool about this. So um, it's really a critical critical element. So how about uh, overcoming the third challenge of arithmetic? That one being not recognizing the power of compounding. Yeah. I found the answer to this really by searching generational families that had a lot of success with a lot of wealth. Mm-hmm. Kind of the opposite of what we saw with Vanderbilt, yeah, right? right? Like who, right. who were the other side, right? Despite all the challenges, they're still successful, they're still wealthy mm-hmm. today. And you know what it was? More than anything else, they didn't look at the wealth as buckets of money. They looked at it as a business. Mm-hmm. They thought of the overall wealth of the family as an investment company to be led with structure and with governance. And look, some of our listeners are business owners thinking of selling their business. And they should really look at the money from selling the business as the next business, yep. right? What, what would you do if you were starting another business? You would have governance and a fiduciary board and a team of professional advisors that would understand the generations and provide continuity. I mean, this is what the DuPonts, the Pritzkers, the Rockefeller, this is what they've done. They run this as a business. Yeah. And by, by the way, finally, I, I have a client that's a fifth-generation client that really, to me, had an interesting concept of this stewardship idea. What was that? He explained to me that he was brought up being told that uh, being an heir in a trust means the following. I trust you to steward the money to the next generation. Mm-hmm. I've put it in your name. It's right there on the trust because we have confidence in you. You may have the right to be compensated for the important role through some distributions from the trust for your health and maintenance and support, but not for wants, not for wish, wishes, and not at the detriment of those you're stewarding the money for in the future. Well, that's great. I think that, that it's uh, an important way to think through it. i probably use that in the future. Yeah. Well, and, this, and, and then I'll, I'll throw this also in there that, and this is a hard one for some, but it's okay not to treat every heir exactly the same. I mean, it's not realistic to believe that all of our heirs will have the same abilities or even the same needs. True. And that's why there are wonderful, capable, professional fiduciaries. You know, the independent trustees, attorneys, CPAs, they can work along some heirs or even sometimes just completely on their behalf. Uh, when I when I think of this, I'm reminded of a psychologist's uh, description one time I heard of how children are like vegetables in a garden. Okay. Seems kind of odd, I know. Okay, but right. okay. look, remember, garlic is a bulb, a tomato is a fruit, and a carrot is a root. Mm-hmm. Each needs its own type of fertilizer, right? If you provide the same to all of them, 
only one is going to reach its full potential, right? right? But if you can take the time to really learn each one of them and apply the appropriate fertilizer, then they can all thrive. Right, right, right. right. That's fascinating. Steve, I just want to summarize. We covered a lot of ground, right? So let's just walk through what I I found to be the three most important things. We've, We've covered how your team addresses generational wealth in your interactions with your clients, three really important pitfalls that need to be avoided, and then how to avoid them. Um, what are your final thoughts as you think through the research that you've done over the years and, and I guess, launching this Music to My Heirs podcast? As an advisor to these generational families, let me tell you that there's really five things that I believe families need to do to be successful. First, I think it's really important that they define what generational success looks like to them. It's very personal. Different for everybody. Different for everybody. They need to open, secondly, their discussions with their advisors about more than just their financial assets. Mm -hmm. Third, they need to rank the three pitfalls that I mentioned as it applies to their family. And in some cases, maybe there's only one, maybe there's two. Focus in on the one that will make the biggest impact first and then work down. Right. Fourth, you need to examine your family's advisory team to make sure you have all the roles covered with advisors who actually specialize in the challenges of generational wealth. And then last, start introducing your next generation to that fiduciary team because there needs to be some time in there to establish knowledge and trust. Right. This, this is a long game, and so you want to make sure you're surrounded by good people and you want everybody to know who they are and establish their own relationships. Absolutely. My team comes together every day with the understanding that the advice that we give, it has impact and that it helps our clients exceed their goals and that is what provides us with purpose. Yeah. This is all great advice, and, and um, I'm sure your clients appreciate all the work you've done and the research. As we finish up um, and thinking about this podcast going forward, what can we expect out of this? Well, Matt, look, I, I'll be addressing the questions that my clients and other high net worth families have, and I plan to garner the thought leaders both inside Bernstein and outside to provide them with the best advice. You know, with that said... I hope I can get you back where I can ask a few more questions in the future. I'd be happy to. Great. Look, I also suggest that everyone catch Matt on Bernstein Insights where he covers the trends in the economy, the markets, and asset allocation for long-term investors. Thanks for that plug, You bet. I always (laughs) want to make sure and keep you covered. You can find Matt's podcast and Music to My Ears anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Thanks, Matt. No, I'm fine. Pleasure. This has been Music to My Ears. For more information on this podcast or to ask a question, just email us at stephen.lewis at bernstein.com. Bernstein.